Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 12 as we continue through this glorious epistle that the Lord has given us, this supernaturally powerful letter that our brother Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome that the Lord has so graciously given to us. We'll read together, beginning in verse 9. We've been, over the last few weeks, dealing with this, just this little paragraph that that, uh, is so rich and so deep. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us that by your spirit working through your word, you have caused our dead hearts to live, our blinded eyes to see. You transform us daily into the likeness of Christ, and we pray, God, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes by your spirit through your word among us this morning. I pray for myself that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing to make our way in in this paragraph through these 13 directives that Paul gives for how we ought to live as Christians within the body of Christ. And it is is so clear, uh, so kind of the Lord to give us these directions, to give us this this clear direction. He's not only revealed himself to us in his words so that we can know him and worship him rightly, but he's also seen fit to tell us how he created us to live what we were made for, what we were meant for, how we can live lives that actually please him. And if our lives are going to be pleasing to God, Paul has already told us they need to be lived as a living sacrifice to him. If we're going to please the Lord, then we're going to be living sacrifices to him that honor him. And and these 13 things that Paul has given us in this paragraph and what follows it will mark our lives if we are living lives that please the Lord. And so we covered over the last two weeks the first five of them in verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Paul uses this word unhypocritical, which I don't think we'll find in our dictionary. But our love ought to be unhypocritical love. We're to abhor what is evil, to turn away from it in horror and disgust, to to hold fast, cement ourselves to what is good. Last week we saw that we're to to love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And this morning as we turn our attention to verse 11, we'll see the next three. To not be slothful in zeal, to be fervent in spirit, to serve the Lord. And we're just going to walk through those three directives this morning. Do not be slothful in zeal, Paul says. The New American Standard says, not lagging behind in diligence. It's a good translation also. Zeal, diligence, this word. Spude in the Greek. It's where we get the, the word speed in the English language. 
It, it, it means an earnestness in fulfilling an obligation. It's, it's to do it with urgency. It's to do it with energy. It's to do it with immediacy. And to be slothful, this word here, to, to lag behind in the New American Standard is to be lazy. It's to shrink back from doing something. And so in the context here of Paul's instructions on how to live life as Christians, particularly within the body of Christ that he has placed us in, oh, it's dead. It's dead there. All right, we're back on. In the Christian life, we cannot be lazy. We cannot be apathetic and think that we're going to be healthy in any way. We simply won't. We simply won't be living sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And so then this, this, again, this directive, as we've seen with some of the other ones, is here because it's not the most natural and easy thing for us in our human flesh to do this. To be slothful or to not be slothful in zeal is something we'll have to cultivate. It's something we'll have to work at. It's something we'll have to, to, to have on the front of our minds. It's a disciplined approach to exerting ourselves for the cause of Christ, and we're not going to just slide into that. It's, and to not be slothful in zeal means that, that we are consistent in this. It's not in spurts and stops of frantic energy, but it's a disciplined thing. It's a sustained thing. It's a, it's a life-lived laboring for Christ. And so as soon as we start talking like this about, about this instruction, this command to labor for Christ, to not be lazy, but to be zealous, we need to remind ourselves we're not talking about working to earn salvation here. We can't forget everything Paul's told us that has led us to this point in the book of Romans. We're not talking about earning right standing with God. In that regard, the Christian life is one of rest, not labor. We have been given rest from fruitless living. We have been given rest from the hopeless cycle of attempting to save ourselves. We've been given rest from, from the hamster wheel of works-based salvation that, that must work so hard to, to merit something from God, wearing ourselves out in a meaningless chase for something we could ever, ever attain. We are in Christ, given rest from man-made religion, where the harder you try, Paul has revealed to us, the further you're actually getting away from the goal, the further you're getting away from the grace of God. So life in Christ is indeed rest for our souls. We need to remind ourselves of that right up front so we keep our categories straight. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Before that, he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. But that's not the only thing the Bible has to say about the Christian life. The Bible uses several metaphors for the Christian life that don't sound like taking it easy. They don't sound anything like taking a nap. The Bible likes to use a farming metaphor for living the Christian life. Farming is hard. We know that living in this community. Many of us have, have done some work on a farm, and we know that there's sweat and toil and blisters and injuries involved. 
It was much harder in the first century. So this, this example that the Bible uses is upping it even more. It uses the, the metaphor of competing in athletic competition. It uses the metaphor of running a marathon, running a very long distance. It uses the metaphor of fighting a war for the Christian life. This, this doesn't sound like taking it easy and just putting our feet up and laying back and letting things happen. The, the rest that Jesus invites us to is not lazy Christianity. But that's not what he has saved us into, where the goal is simply our comfort or our convenient existence, free of worry, free of obligation, free of pain, free of stress, free of duty. It's not what we've been called to. Life in Christ is a rest. Absolutely it is. It is a rest from fruitless toil. It's a rest from the kind of work that gets you nothing, that results in, in nothing. But what our life in Christ is called to be is intentional engagement in fruitful labor. Fruitful labor that brings joy in the present and brings eternal reward. That, that's what we've been saved into. That's what we've been called into. Walking with Christ is not like taking a nap in that regard. It's labor. It's work. But it's fruitful work. It's joy-producing labor. That's what we've been saved into. And it brings with it eternal reward. Matthew 6, verse 20, Jesus says, Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. We could, it would be well worth our time to trace through this theme throughout the Bible. Rewards in heaven. We certainly don't have the time to do it this morning. But it is a pervasive theme throughout all of Scripture. That we are to live our lives in such a way in the present that we will be rewarded in eternity because of it. We see this theme running all the way through Scripture. And that theme is not at odds with the glorious doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ Jesus alone. These, these two things are not at odds with one another. The, the rewards given for faithful living for Christ on this earth are not about salvation, which is always and only by the grace of God through faith alone. Because of the finished work of Christ alone and not our work. But we, we are commanded to live obedient lives. The Christian is commanded to live this way. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, you were, you were created for and you were saved for good works, for work, to labor, to toil in, in fruitful, joy-producing labor for the Lord. And here's the amazing thing then. God sees fit to reward us for that obedience then. The obedience that God both commands and produces in us, the obedience that God prepares us for, empowers us to do, causes our good works, and then he rewards us for it. How glorious is that? God is the one producing the good works in us, and then he says, here, let me reward you for the good works. It's astounding. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are commanded to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
We're, we're commanded to these things, but then Paul includes, and the reason you can do it, and the reason you should do it is because it's actually God working in you, both to will, in, order, in other words, you wouldn't want to otherwise. He produces the will in you, and to work. He empowers you to do it for his good pleasure. This is amazing. God then gives and gives and gives in lavish reward for the very thing he produces in us. It would be like if you did all your kids' chores for them at home and then said, here's some, here's some money. Go out and have a great time. Good job. The house is sparkling clean. If you've done that, bad parenting. And the rewards of heaven, it's not gold. It's not piles of, of earthly treasure or anything like that. The streets are paved with that stuff. We don't need that stuff. It's, it's far better than what we consider our earthly treasure. The greatest reward of all will be, as one commentator says, a greater increasing capacity for the fullness of enjoyment of God himself. Now that is truly an immeasurable reward. And God gives that to us. The Christian life is, is often described in the New Testament with two Greek words that, that sort of, they have a lot in common and they often go together. We, we get an English word from each of these two Greek words. The first is kopiao, where we get the word copious. Copious as in Lots, lots and lots and lots of whatever it is. The other is agonizomai. You probably hear that word agony in there, where we get the word agony. These are words that are translated as toil and hardship or labor and strivings. They're, they're used often in the New Testament together describing the Christian life. Paul, Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds a promise for this present life and for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, that is godliness, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The Christian life is one of copious agonizing over the things that will last forever. But that, that's our call. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, gives us this assurance. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your toil, is not in vain. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, For God did... God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of the hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells young Timothy, be diligent. To present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. In other words, Timothy, if you're not diligent, if you're lazy, you should be ashamed. If you're not diligent to rightly handle the word, Timothy, it's shameful. And you should be ashamed. A lot of 
should probably just pass that along to a lot of churches this morning as it pertains to their handling of the word of truth. These commands are not commands, though, for us to be busier. We just need to be busy little people. We need to add more to our calendars. We need to put more things on our to-do list. That's not the instruction here. Rather, it's a disciplined approach to all of life that accounts for eternity. That's what, what, what we're instructed to. What that might actually mean for you is having fewer things on your calendar. Not adding to but doing more things that eternally matter instead of the things you're already doing that don't, that that are going to fade away. It may mean instead of working and toiling and spending all of your time to store up treasures on this earth, instead you utilize your time and your energy and your resources to store up for yourself greater treasures in heaven. There's an urgency to this diligence that we are called to. Whatever we do for the Lord must be done in this life. This is it. This is all we've got. Life is short. Eternity is rushing towards us like a freight train. It will be upon us sooner than we realize for every one of us. And then we're going to see that our life is just a vapor. And so we are supposed to live our lives accordingly. There is an urgency to this. Jonathan Edwards, generally considered to be the the greatest theological mind ever born on American soil, had a list of resolutions, 70 of them, 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, all of them written before he was 20 years old, and he would read them every week of his entire life, from the time he was 20 until the time of his dying. I want to read a couple of them to you because they capture the heart of what this verse is saying to us. Resolution number one, resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration. Number five, resolved to never lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying. This was written by a 19-year-old. To think much on all occasions of my own dying. Number 17, resolved that I shall live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 28, resolved to study the scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of them. That's a good resolution. Number 43, resolve. Never henceforth till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. He saw himself as a slave of Christ, not his own. Number 50, resolve. I will act as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. When, when Jonathan Edwards did go into the future world, when he, when he did come to his time of dying, he was three weeks into his role as the new president of Princeton University. He died up, upstairs in his office. Um, smallpox had broken out and there was a new vaccine and he thought he needed to set an example for others. 
by taking the vaccine, and the vaccine actually killed him. It was very unexpected, very tragic. But although it was unexpected and unplanned, he was ready to face eternity. He had been preparing for that moment his entire life. Weekly reminding himself, daily living with that moment in mind. He lived and he died without regrets. What about you as you look on your life right now? If you were to come to that moment right now, what regrets would you have about the way you've been living your life? What regrets would you have about the way you spent this week if it was your last week? There's an urgency to this call. He says then in our next phrase here in verse 11, be fervent in spirit. This word fervent means to, to seethe, to boil, to be stirred up. It's to, it's to be passionate. It's to be enthusiastic. It's to be on fire spiritually. It's the, it's the very opposite of apathy. It's the very opposite of lukewarmness. Now, to be at the boiling point spiritually does not mean to be out of control. It's not some kind of ecstatic Pentecostal loss of all self-control that Paul is telling us we need to have. It's more like a steam engine running at full strength. The, the boiler in a steam engine is productive as it boils. It's focused. It's purposeful. It's powerful. In a steam engine like that, it took an enormous amount of work to, to keep these huge reservoirs of water hot enough to boil. And so there were people whose whole job it was to be a stoker. They called them either a, a stoker or a fireman. And their whole job was to keep this fire blazing so that this engine was running on full power. And so they worked very, very hard shoveling coal into the furnace to keep this powerful engine running. Well, to stoke, to stoke the spiritual fires in our heart requires that kind of constant attention. We can't just leave it unmanned and assume that all is going to be well. It's a constant shoveling of fuel into the furnace, the intentional, regular cultivation of proper affections for Christ. The intentional, regular cultivation of proper love and affection for other Christians, it, it requires doing something in your own heart and life to remind you that life is short, like Edwards did with his resolutions. Doing something to remind you daily that heaven and hell are real. Doing something to remind you that, that all of mankind is hanging in the eternal balance right now. This isn't about manufacturing emotions. Being fervent in spirit is not emotionalism. There are churches, there are whole movements that are built on trying to emotionally charge up the audience. And audience is the right word because it's a performance that's going on. So the music is designed to give you goosebumps. The sermon's a pep talk or a motivational speech designed to give you goosebumps and sound bites. And the truth is it's weak. It's powerless to change lives. 
frankly, it, it often produces false converts. My prayer for, for our time together in corporate worship each Sunday morning is that it would be a time of profound encouragement to you and to me. A time of strengthening, a time of blessing to you. And I believe that by God's spirit, that's exactly what it is. It, it is a means of grace to us. Something supernatural is happening right here, right now in this room as the people of God gather together to worship him and hear the word of God proclaimed. We believe that with our whole hearts. But the purpose of corporate worship is not an emotional high. What fuels fervency for Christ is not getting really, really revved up once or twice a week. It's not getting a whole bunch of goosebumps and feeling a certain kind of way. Fervency for Christ is fueled by living a faithful and faith-filled life. That's what stokes the fires that blaze. Don't confuse fervency. Don't confuse being on fire for Christ with simply being loud. It's not the same thing. It's often in times of suffering that the fires for Christ are stoked the highest. Where we, we trust in him, where we run to him, where we know that there's, there's no hope for us except for him. What that means is you can't, for instance, look around the room this morning and determine whether someone else is fervent for Christ the way that Paul tells us to be by observing their actions when we're singing together. Well, I know they're not. Just look at them. Well, that's not how it works. God's not calling us to a youth group summer camp spiritual high that disappears a week after you get home. He's not calling us to a hyper-spiritual enthusiasm that pumps you up but lasts as long as your New Year's resolutions last every year. That's not what God's calling us to. That's not what it means. The, the, the stoking of the fires of spiritual fervency means a steady commitment to those things which cause your love for Christ to grow. A steady commitment to that which makes you live for the glory of God. Which makes you long for heaven. Makes you eager for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a steady commitment to the things that make you hate sin more. And want to see it put to death in your life. It's a commitment to the things that, that make you serve others better. The things that make you want to pour yourself out, invest your time, invest your, your gifts, invest your resources in those things which last forever. That's how the flames of spiritual fervency are stoked. What, what are these things? What do we need to be shoveling into our furnaces? Well, God hasn't left us guessing on that. I'll just give you six things. This is nowhere close to an exhaustive list. First is you need to read your Bible. Do you, want to, do you want to live with spiritual fervency? If you are not continually drinking from God's word, you have no fuel for spiritual fervency. You are trying to run a furnace with no coal in it. And it, what it means is any emotional response... I mean, you could take an empty furnace with no coal in it, set a newspaper on fire, toss it into the furnace, and you'll get a nice-looking flame for a little bit. 
Any emotional response, any spiritual passion that doesn't come from the living word of God is a counterfeit. It is a phony. It is pure emotionalism. And it will not last. Only the truth of God is the real fuel for spiritual fervency. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, that's going to be hard because I just have no desire for the word of God. I would ask you to consider very strongly whether the Holy Spirit, who is the author of this word of God, actually dwells in you. Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. I'm not talking about the natural highs and lows and valleys that all Christians go through. You just have no desire ever. Might be because you're unconverted. Second, read good books. Need to put the word good in there. Because you can't just walk into a Christian bookstore and say, all of these are good books. No, a lot of them are garbage. It won't do you any spiritual good whatsoever. Read inspiring Christian biographies. You want, you want your soul to be on fire? Read about men like Jonathan Edwards and their lives. Read, read about Tyndale and Calvin and Luther and Knox and Spurgeon. And the list could go on and on and on. See the price that they paid. See the sacrifices they made. See their passion. Conference I was at this week, the, the speaker said, you need to be discipled by the heroes of the faith so true so true that this this baton has been passed down to us the speaker said speaking to a room full of pastors the baton has been passed down to you through much toil through much suffering and you need to know whose blood's on it it's true christian you have a heritage of faith it's never been easier than it is right now to find good books and good podcasts that that will tell you the lives of these great men and even hear their teaching. It will do more for your soul than the next End Times novel, I promise you. It will do you more eternal good than hearing somebody's claim that they went to heaven and I want to tell you all about it. It will ignite a fire in you that won't go out. Third, for God's sake, get rid of the things that put your fire out. Get rid of them. What causes your passion for Jesus to be dulled? Get rid of it. Throw it out. Cancel your subscription. Spend less time with those people. Fourth, you need to pursue the Lord in prayer. Seek Him. Cry out to Him. Pour, pour your heart out to Him. Planned prayers. Planned times of prayer. Unplanned times of prayer. Formal prayer. Informal prayer. Pray. Walk in communion with the Lord. Fifth, maintain fellowship with other fervent, passionate believers. Spiritual fervor is contagious. God, God designed us to labor together for spiritual fervor with one another. If you take one burning ember and, and remove it from all the other burning embers and set it aside on its own, what's it going to do? It's going to be quickly extinguished. We, we need each other. God has given us to each other. 
Don't forsake the gathering of the corporate church. There is something supernatural that happens when the church gathers. And we don't have to be able to, we don't have to, be able to recognize it. We don't have to be able to see it. We don't have to be able to feel it. It just is true. And then invest your life in these people all week. We need more. We need more than just to come together for an hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday morning. Six, you need to confess all personal sin. Sin kills passion. Sin douses out the fires of passion. As John Owen has said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Confess it to God and enlist his help to put these things to death. Confess it to others and enlist their help in putting these things to death. And you will see the flames of passion ignite within you. We need to move on to our third phrase in this verse. It's hard to get through a whole verse sometimes. John Phillips points this out of this verse in his commentary, that that Paul's directives in this verse are are multi-directional in focus. Do not be slothful in zeal is an outward focus. Be fervent in spirit is an inward focus. And now he says, serve the Lord is an upward focus. Paul tells us, serve the Lord. This word he uses here, serve, is the verb form of the word slave. So if we were to to literally render this this phrase, it would be, as it relates to the Lord, slaving. To our minds, the idea of slaving has a very negative connotation, and that's appropriately so, given our nation's history. Slaving in our minds is associated with unfairness and mistreatment. So even our Bibles often won't translate the word as it really is because of the connotation with that word slave and the offense there. But it's a word that's all over the New Testament as a description for what it means to be a true Christian. Those who follow Christ are indeed slaves. He's the master. He's the Lord. We belong to him. In fact, slave is the description that all the New Testament writers took on for themselves. We saw this at the beginning of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ. That's what he calls himself in Galatians 1, verse 10. In Philippians 1, verse 1, a slave of Christ. James 1, 1, James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, Peter, a slave and an apostle. Jude 1.1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his slaves the the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John. Time doesn't permit to trace out all the times in the New Testament that Christians are called slaves or that New Testament writers call themselves slaves slaves. Again, many translations will will read as servant or bondservant anytime that word is used. It is a bit of cowardly translating because of the stigma associated with the word slave. But there is a big difference between a servant and a slave. 
A servant owns his life, he just works for somebody. A slave, though, is owned. He doesn't even own his own life. He belongs to his master. The master, in effect, says to the slave, I own you. I own all of you. You belong to me. And this understanding of slavery is fundamental. It is a fundamental description of our relationship to God. We just have to get over our shame of of the wicked slavery that took place in our nation. And let's just be clear, in the New Testament, when Paul talks about slavery, it's not the kind of slavery we had here in the United States. The Bible does talk about that. It is a different word. It's a different word in the Greek for for what we would call chattel slavery, which is what we had here, where someone is is your complete and total property. And when the Bible talks about that, it says, if anyone is involved in that, it's called man-stealing, and the death penalty is what they get for that. So when, people, when you hear people say, well, the Bible condones slavery, absolutely not. And those who used it to defend that kind of slavery were, were wickedly wrong. But this concept of the master and the slave is essential for us if we're going to understand the Christian life. If we're going to understand our right place as it relates to God and our relationship with him. He is the Lord. We are his slaves we have been purchased out of the slave market. That's what redemption means. This, is, this imagery is all through the New Testament and through the gospel. We've been purchased by him to belong to him out of the slave market of our sin and condemnation. We are loved. We are rescued. We are redeemed. Bought with a great price. We're certainly more than slaves. We're adopted sons. Paul's shown us that in Romans. Jesus even called his followers friends. But don't get it wrong. None of this means we're not still slaves. And he's still the master. so, So this is central to our lives as Christians. And what the New Testament writers, with all their credentials... As disciples, all their credentials as apostles chose to identify themselves this way. More than than anything else, here's the most important thing about me, Paul would say, Peter would say, James would say, Jude would say, John would say. If you only know one thing about me, know this, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the highest calling. There isn't a higher calling than to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's there's nothing better. Would that all of us had the same mindset that these apostles had, that these authors of the New Testament had about themselves. How is it that you see yourself? How is it that you define yourself? How is it that you think of yourself? What's your core identity? Is it that you're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? And in this moment, you might be like, yes, that's what it is. No, is it really? How easy we forget. How easy we're distracted. I pray that it would be, though, in my life, in your life. I pray that it would be. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than to to know that that this is exactly who we are. And if you're not a slave of Christ, you need to know this. You are a slave of something. 
Your own resistance right now is a demonstration of your enslavement. It's a demonstration of your bondage. It's a demonstration of your deception in sin. You are such a slave that you don't even think you're a slave. That's how much of a slave you are. Sin enslaves you so deeply that you think you're free. Martin Luther said it like this, you're a donkey and the devil is riding you. He has got the bit in your mouth and he turns you any direction he wants to turn you. And that's so much what your life is like that you think that's total freedom and you're in charge. But listen, friend, that that was all of us. That was every one of us. We're no better than you. We who know the Lord, we who have been, have been purchased out of that slavery, out of that bondage. But this is what God has done for us. He, he bought us out of slavery. He bound us to himself in such a way that we will never, ever leave. We have been graciously united to the master who is Christ. Th- thank God for our Redeemer. Thank God for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ who came into the slave market of this world while we were still in chains. We weren't free. We were bound to the cruel mastery of sin. He redeemed us right there as we were. We did not come to him. We could not come to him. He came in and chose us and purchased us with his own blood. He brought us out of our bondage and in love united us to himself. We were dead And we've been made alive. But I need to ask you in light of this verse, does your life show that that's happened? Does your life testify? In your your fervency for the Lord, in your zeal for the Lord, in your service to the Lord. Does your life testify that you have been made a slave of God or would your life reveal that you're a slave of sin? Your life will tell the truth about who you are. Your life will tell the truth about whose you are. Your master is determined by your submission, by your obedience. You will obey your master. Are you submitting to Christ then? Are you submitting to righteousness? Are you submitting to his word? Is your life marked by diligent work for your master? Is there a fervent passion for Christ who has redeemed you, who has saved you, who has made you his own, or would would your life testify that you don't actually belong to him, that you belong to another? Well, friends, there's one solution for all of us, and that's run to Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You who labor and are heavy laden, come to him. He'll give you rest. His promises are true. His power to save is limitless. Come to him. Submit to him. Call out to him. He will have you. He will have you. If you will humbly call on him to save you, here's what that means. He has already identified you in that slave market and said, you're mine. 
to spirit empowering you, enabling you, giving you the will and the desire to call out to him. Oh, but you must call. Call out to him. Come to him. He'll have you. There's freedom here. There's life here. There's joy here. And peace and grace in abundance. There is no greater freedom, there is no greater joy than belonging body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great salvation. Lord, even as we consider these commands together for how we ought to live our lives as your people, we recognize that apart from your spirit, this would be completely impossible. Lord, we would have no desire. We would have no capacity. Lord, in saving us and giving us new hearts and new minds and your spirit to dwell in us, we we now have this desire to live for you and please you. But even as your people, we could never do this apart from the work of your spirit in us. So we pray, God, that you would transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Lord, that we would bring glory to you with our lives, that our lives would be marked by this, this fervor and this joy and this zeal for you that is contagious, Lord, that a, that a dying world needs desperately. Cause us again, Lord, to know the joy of salvation, the glory of belonging to you as your own. Lord, we rejoice that to be a slave of Christ is to be a son the vast inheritance. We rejoice that there's, there's no, no greater thing than to be a living sacrifice to God. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to shape us and mold us into your likeness. Cause us, Lord, not to be conformed to the likeness of this world, but to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. Cause us to live lives that glorify and honor you. In Jesus' name.